happy birthday, M, to the full star. <laughs> She's too special not to say anything. Um, our Bible reading comes from Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 14 through to verse 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. <clears throat> when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Morning, morning everyone. Good to see you. My name is Jared. I'm the pastor here and um, please join me as we pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your truth. And we pray this morning that you would uh, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand what it is that you're saying to us. And uh, please, Lord, grant that we would see the necessity of turning to Jesus while there is still time. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, so uh, we've had a few heavy sermons in a row now, and so... Um, this is another one, <laughs> so <laughs> um, just giving you a forewarning. Uh, the, my title is Compromise Kills, uh, Warning Against Unrepentance. Um, uh, but don't hear that in a, try, I'm trying to be mean way, hear that in a, I want you to know the love of Jesus, and I know that many of you already do. Uh, last week, we saw that Jesus, uh, the Twelve, and us all preached the same message of calling people to repentance. 
that's a big word that means turning away from our rebellion, going our way to turning Jesus' way and trusting him. But what happens when we don't repent, when we make compromises and we don't confess them or, or turn back to God, when we choose self-rule over God's rule, uh, when, when we give ground to Satan, however small it may seem to us, what happens then? Well, it, it can take a long time, but sure enough, everything goes horribly wrong. Uh, that compromise grows into all-out corruption, which results in death, or to put it briefly, compromise kills. The seed of unrepentance grows into the weed of all-out rebellion that's thrown into the fire and perishes. Case study, the Herod family. If Netflix is looking for a new show to make, then I reckon they'd have a lot of material here. This is like really disturbing, it's messed up, there's death, there's all kinds of wrong things going on. Exactly like most Netflix shows. <laughs> so what's the point of Mark taking this detour from the life of Jesus? Is it just to fill in the gap of how John the Baptist died? Well, it definitely does do that for us. Um, but, but Mark does so much more for us here. Um, so it clears up why, why people were saying Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. But it does so much more than that. Mark, by the Holy Spirit... Uh, he's written this in a way that, that takes a turn from showing how amazing and wonderful and lovely and kind and compassionate Jesus' kingdom is to how evil and grotesque human kingdoms are. And the irony of this whole situation is that people can't work out who Jesus is. They just can't pin him down. Uh, when he is the real king, and, and yet people think that Herod is king. But Herod isn't the real king. Jesus is. And the message of repentance, the turning from, from our way to God's way, asking him for forgiveness for our sins. That message, preached by the Twelve and preached by Jesus, comes up again in this account, this time illustrating when, what happens when there's unrepentance, when people refuse to turn to God, and compromise leads to death. And we're going to work our way through the passage this morning and see more of Jesus, and we're also going to see how compromise kills, but how there is hope in turning to Jesus in this life, even though it is costly. So we'll start with Jesus, the real king. Jesus' fame is growing. Uh, we begin today by looking at Jesus. Uh, I'm never going to apologize for that. We're a Christ-centered church, and uh, everything we do centers on the Lord Jesus. Uh, Mark, just like every other book of the Bible, is a Christ-centered book. And Mark told us right at the beginning of his book that this is the massive news of Jesus, the king of the whole world, the king who saves. And Jesus' fame has been growing, as we've been seeing in Mark. He's becoming more and more well-known. Uh, in today's passage, Jesus is so famous that Mark starts to refer to him simply as him. Because everyone knows who Mark is talking about. There's no doubt about it. Uh, in fact, Jesus' name appears only three times in Mark chapters 6 to 8. Twice in chapter 6 and then, only one, and then again only in 8.27. Uh, that's where uh, Peter identifies uh, Jesus as the Christ, and, um, and that's the climax of where we're heading. So sorry for the spoiler alert, but it's important <laughs> that you know that. Um, and, uh, and, and so if you've, if you've been with us for the earlier chapters of Mark, or maybe you've read some of Mark before, uh, you'll know that Jesus has been doing awesome actions. He's been healing people, casting out demons, teaching, forgiving sins, 
all of which point to his identity as the king. Meaning that Mark can say him, and we all know who him is, who he, who he is. <laughs> anyway, in contrast to Jesus being referred to as him and not being named once in today's passage, but we still know it's him, Herod's name comes up seven times in these verses and eight times in total in Mark. Uh, Herod, while he may appear to have worldly power, is in the big scheme of things, in, sorry, in the big scheme of things, so insignificant that he needs to keep being identified by name. Who are we talking about again? Oh, oh yes, that's right. It's Herod. Some king he is. But Mark says his name had become known. Whose name? Obviously Jesus' name. Mark's made it completely obvious that it's been about Jesus this whole time in everything that we've read. And so now it's no different. It still remains to be all about Jesus. His fame has grown so prominent that we can say him and and the people know. And yet, while everyone knows that Mark's talking about Jesus, they can't seem to work out who Jesus is. People know that Jesus is powerful. They know that he's doing mighty signs and wonders. They know that he's been teaching with wisdom and depth of insight that comes only from God. But yet they can't seem to nail him down. They can't work out who he is. They know his name, but not his identity. They know Mark means Jesus, but they haven't understand yet who Jesus is. And remember, Mark's told us already who Jesus is, so we know he's the promised king who's come to save. But they're a bit confused. Uh, they're, they're only coming to terms with this as the pages unfold. And so some of the questions they ask are, is he John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is he Elijah or some other Old Testament prophet? And in the midst of wondering, Mark tells us that King Herod, um, if you're trying to work out which Herod it is, it's the son of the King Herod who tried to murder Jesus as a baby. Uh, Mark tells us that this King Herod heard of Jesus. And it's ironic. King Herod, the guy Mark has to keep telling us who he is. This local king who ruled over a small portion of Galilee in the first century. People think of him as the king, but they can't work out who Jesus is. But Jesus here, the, whole, the king of the whole world of all time, is standing right in front of them. And as the news of Jesus reaches the higher echelons of society, they don't know who Jesus is either. As Herod hears about Jesus, you can, you can almost sense the anxiety, can't you? Verse 14, Mark says, King Herod heard of it, uh, referring to the apostles going out. For his, that's referring to Jesus' name, had become known. And then the different, after the different options, Herod says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Herod thinks Jesus is John the Baptist come back to life. It's almost like Herod thinks John... Uh, came out of the grave, put his head back on, uh, and has come to haunt his nightmares. Herod must be quaking in his boots. And Herod would be right to be terrified. And yet Jesus isn't John back from the dead. He's someone far more terrifying to sinners. God himself come in the flesh. The almighty, the ultimate one, the king. Jesus' kingdom is truly out of this world. It's a kingdom ruled with compassion justice, mercy, and love. A kingdom with a king who cares, a king who saves, a king who can do something about the situation his people find themselves in, and a king who is perfect in every way. And since Mark hadn't told us about John's death before this point, 
we may be thinking, what? <laughs> John's beheaded? He's dead? When did that happen? Why did that happen? How did that happen? This section does so much more than show us uh, what happened to John, though, or why John died. It shows us how compromise kills. It also shows us the cost of following Jesus. And in doing so, Mark gives us a flashback into the lives of the Herods. A flashback that shows how this human kingdom couldn't be more different to the kingdom of Jesus that we've just described. The Herod family flashback, or as I like to think of it, a right royal mess. We have a corrupt king. Herod was in an unlawful relationship with his, bro- with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Um, marriage was designed by God to be the union of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others till death do they part. But Herod here had taken his own brother's wife to be his own wife. So Herod and Herodias were in an evil relationship that went against God and his plan for marriage. So Herod, the king here, is morally corrupt. And John the Baptist, he had the guts to tell Herod that this relationship was unlawful. He didn't shy away from telling the earthly king of his need to repent, his need to turn to Jesus. And uh, just like uh, Jesus calls people to repent, just like the disciples do, just like we need to as well, John calls Herod to repent. And he does this, this is what he was doing back in chapter one. If you can remember right at the beginning, we met John the Baptist who was calling people to repent for the forgiveness of sins. John tells Herod, that what he's doing is wrong. And in doing so, John calls upon Herod to turn away from his rebellion against God and to turn back to God and trust the Savior Jesus for salvation. But Herod is a conflicted king. Verses 16 to 20 perfectly capture his conflicted state. There are two competing influences on Herod's life and he tries to walk the line to sit on the fence and so he teeters between the two options. They're each put forward by someone Herod listens to. One side that we've just spoken about is from John the Baptist. The other side is from, uh, no prizes for guessing who that side's coming from, Herodias, his unlawful wife. Herod will ultimately only listen to one side. And verse 16 tells us up front which side will win out. Herod will submit not to God, but to his unlawful wife, Herodias, and he will have John beheaded. But then Mark goes back through, and in verses 17 to 20, he continues to show us how Herod is pulled in opposite directions. Verse 17, Herod had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Well, that seems pretty obvious that Herod's on team Herodias then, right? Using his political power to seize John, to lock him up, to bind him as a prisoner. That's decidedly team Herodias. So Herod had John seized and imprisoned to placate his unlawful wife, Herodias. But wait, then we hear in verse 18 what John had been saying to Herod. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. The fact that we even get to hear John's words here, um, that are the beginning of the message of the gospel, shows the other direction Herod is being pulled in. Repent, Herod. Turn away from your sin to God and his promised saviour, King Jesus. But then we're back with Herodias in verse 19. Herodias was very upset with John the Baptist. She had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. This is no minor grudge. This is murderous intent. 
She hated John. He was telling her new, albeit unlawful, husband that he had to break it off. That didn't fit with her plan. Who does this John guy think that he is? I like being married to my brother-in-law. John has to go. I want him out of the way. Finished. Dead. But she couldn't have him put to death. Why? Well, verse 20. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So maybe Herod is on Team John after all. He kept him safe. He protected him from his super upset, murderous, unlawful wife. See why I think Netflix would love this? <laughs> and then we get another glimpse into Herod's view of John. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. That's a fancy word for confused. And yet he heard him gladly. Herod was confused and troubled, anxious even, the kind we get when preaching strikes a chord with us and we know something's not right in ourselves. And yet at the same time, Herod heard him gladly. It's like he knew that it was right that he listened to John, but he was unwilling to really listen to John. The outward display of religion, that's fine. Nice to hear preachers preach and all that. But preaching that requires me to change, I'm confused. Perhaps I want to be confused because to face the reality head on means I must change. There's something I must give up and that's just the thing I'm unwilling to do. A rash vow. Mark moves the story on in an incredible way. He says, by telling us an opportunity came. Um, if you're thinking, well, an opportunity for what? For Herod to repent or for Herodias to kill John? He sets the scene masterfully. It's Herod's birthday. It sounds a bit like Darius in Daniel's day. He's surrounded by his well-to-do officials, his nobles, military commanders, leading men of Galilee. Herod has invited his favorite fancy people, and this is his birthday. It's all about him, and he is loving it. <laughs> then his unlawful wife, Herodias's daughter, came in to dance for them. Herod and all his fancy buddies sit there and watch this girl dance, and they're loving it. Herod is so taken by her that he promises to give her up to half his kingdom. We don't know what kind of dance this was, but we do know what kind of king Herod was. <laughs> A dodgy, corrupt, conflicted king. Add impulsive to the list. He makes a rash vow to give up to half his kingdom. It becomes clear that Herodias is running the show and that the, the opportunity that arose, which Mark mentioned, was for her to wipe John out. Uh, when, when, she, when Herodias' daughter goes and asks her mother what to ask Herod for. And then she says, for John the Baptist's head on a platter. So she comes in and she asks for John's head on a platter at once. Uh, when Michelle was reading that, it struck me how many uh, things she does there in verse 25. Uh, yeah, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to... Uh, to to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She's really, really eager uh, to, 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 for him to be dead. And again, Herod, Herod needs to humble himself, doesn't he? he? He needs to confess his sin and repent. He made this sinful vow. He needs to confess it and repent of it, to turn away from it and come back to God. But despite his exceeding sorrow, he's once again conflicted. You notice in verse 26, And the king was exceedingly sorry... But, but, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. So once again, Herod does not repent. 
And immediately he calls for the executioner. John's head is chopped off, given to Herod's do- Herodias's daughter, who then gives it to her mother. Herod was conflicted, but when he came down to it, he chose his own way instead of God's way. Compromise kills. Herod ought to have listened to John and repented way back at the beginning of this account. But instead, he continued in the way of unrepentance, and it proved deadly. Firstly, for John the Baptist, in response to the call for John's head on a platter, Herod sends and has him executed. But it's deadly in an even greater sense. Those who die in unrepentant sin will face God's judgment in hell. God is not indifferent to people's sin, to our sin. We see the horror of what Herod did to John and are rightly horrified. And then we think how much more so when we think of how the perfect God views such unholiness. John the Baptist died as a result of Herod's sinful compromises. But even more than that, unrepentance, not turning to God, leads to condemnation in hell. Those who don't turn to Jesus will face God's judgment for all eternity. Unrepentance, that is failing to turn away from our sins to Jesus, sends people to hell. And it's not something that only the people with power and influence, the Herods of the world, need to watch out for. Not only something that people outside of the four walls of the church need to watch out for, but every one of us needs to heed the call to repent and mustn't play games with sin. If we play with fire, we'll get burned. We must not go there. Sin is serious. That's why Jesus went to the cross. We mustn't trivialize that which led to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia books and a number of other books, has a book called The Screwtape Letters. Has anyone heard of that? Yep. The premise behind this book is it's a collection of letters from a demon called Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood who's just cutting his teeth in the ways of Satan. Wormwood's assigned a patient whom he is to tempt to his destruction. Wormwood's goal is to get this guy to go to hell. It's confronting reading. But I think one of the scariest things is how accurate it can be. I'm going to read you some from chapter 12, which I think perfectly highlights the point from today's passage that compromise kills. So after describing... Uh, the person uh, uh, that Wormwood's tempting to be oblivious to sin, the letter goes on. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. Remember, this is written from a demon, so the enemy is God, is who they're talking about. It does not matter how small the sins are provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Based on C.S. Lewis's work here, a few key things about the dangers of unrepentance that we need to bear in mind are as follows. Unrepentance leads to hell. As we've said already, we must never play games with sin. 
Unrepentance can start very small. We must never excuse sin as insignificant. We can often be oblivious to areas of compromise, and we need to open our eyes to where we're living contrary to God. And we must examine ourselves in the light of God's word. Uh, Humans living in unrepentant sin dread the idea of going to God. In our sinfulness, our compromises make us want to be away from him. We don't want to face him in our compromised state because we know we stand condemned. But God is a gracious and compassionate God. When we come to him in our sinful state, pleading for mercy, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't believe Satan's lie that you should stay away from God. We're all going to face God in judgment one day. Get right with him now while there is still time. Sin never satisfies, it enslaves. The perils of unrepentance have been laid bare for us. To reject Jesus and to live a life of sin leads to facing God's judgment. So what do we need? We need to repent. We need to turn away from all our sin, from everything that causes us to not be right with God, and turn to Jesus, our only hope, the Saviour. The astonishing news is that Jesus, who is God, came down from heaven to save people like me and like you by dying on a cross, paying the price for the sins that we'd committed. That is amazing love, and this is the amazing King, and you can know him. Uh, We've heard where living in unrepentance ends up, but there is hope to be found in Jesus. Salvation only found in Jesus. So the message that we all need to hear is the message of turning and trusting Jesus the Saviour. Is there something in your life that's keeping you from Jesus. A secret sin, perhaps. Maybe no one else knows about it. Are you compromising in a particular area, thinking that it's nothing significant? Are there lies that you've believed about God that he doesn't love you, or that he's withholding things from you? God loves you dearly. He loves us dearly. He who didn't withhold his own son, how could we ever accuse him of withholding goodness from us? Maybe you've been hearing of the seriousness of sin today and you can see that in your own life and maybe you can see that there are areas of your life which you've been holding back from God, living in opposition to him. And maybe the idea of coming to God terrifies you. Our sin truly is horrible and it does mean that based on our records, we stand condemned before God. But, but there is still time now. We don't know how much time But right now, you can come to Jesus and be made righteous, washed clean of all your sin, and be right with God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The beautiful exchange that happens is that Jesus takes our sinful rebellion in our place on the cross, and in return gives us his perfect righteousness. Don't stand condemned before God. Come to Jesus today, who took that condemnation in your place. I'll lead us in a prayer in a moment where you can do just that, coming to Jesus, confessing our sin and asking God for mercy. Maybe this is the first time you've ever done this. Or maybe you're coming back to Jesus because you know you haven't been living his way. And if either of those are you this morning, then I want to ask you to please come and talk to me.
I'll be around and uh, please come and chat to me. I'd love to talk to you more and encourage you in the Lord Jesus. I also want to ask you to please tell someone else. Don't just tell me. Um, maybe tell a, a, a family or a fa family member or a friend or the person who brought you here this morning. Or better yet, tell all of them so that they too may be encouraged by the amazing love of Jesus and his work in you. Jesus tells us to count the cost of following him. Living for Jesus doesn't make this life easier. Look what happened to John the Baptist. John was beheaded for living for Jesus, for preaching repentance, for being faithful to God. So we rightly need to count the cost. Living for Jesus is costly. But even though it will cost us in this life, it's worth it. The glory to come so far outweighs any possible suffering we may endure in this life. The glory that John is enjoying right now so far outweighs the horror of his beheading. And we need to ask ourselves, who else would we want to live for than the one who died for us? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you as simple people, people who have lived our life our own way, who have done so many things that go against you and, and um, have tried to rule ourselves. We've been like Herod. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. Wash us clean by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Cleanse us, we pray. Give us his righteousness. Make us new. And Lord, grant that we would not live unrepentant lives, but that we would live repentantly, so that when we sin, when we mess up, we quickly come to you, we confess it, and we trust wholly in you, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your precious, almighty name. Amen. And uh, if, if maybe, 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 you, maybe you are someone who's, who's living with Jesus as your Lord, and you're taking each day trying to, trying to live for him, I want to encourage you that when faced with, with sin, when Satan tempts you, when you feel tempted, or when you feel like you want to do the wrong thing, Remember Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. He's the loving Savior who went to the cross for you to rescue you from your sin. And we need to remember that we must not go the way of unrepentance. Quickly turn back to God. God is faithful and just to forgive us when we confess our sins to him. Don't believe Satan's lie that you need to stay away from God. Come back to him quickly every day.